Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's episode, we have an update about the results of a special town meeting in Brewster regarding a potential boardwalk to Wing Island, And warrants are starting to come together for the regular spring town meetings across the Cape. Will David is here with his exclusive WOMR weekend weather outlook. And Ira Wood has a matter of opinion about things that shouldn't be hard, but can send you to the hospital. Brewster voters packed Stony Brook Elementary School on Monday to share their opinions about Wing Island and a proposal to build a raised boardwalk to the island from the mainland. The meeting was called as the result of a citizen's petition and resulted in votes to prohibit any further spending on the project, to repeal the earlier approval of a master plan for Drummer Boy Park that included reference to the addition of a boardwalk, and to transfer control of the island from the select board to the Town Conservation Commission. Although these votes were not technically binding, town leaders assured voters that they will follow the will of the majority. Wing Island is a wooded barrier island surrounded by tidal marsh with a remotely situated beach. Presently accessed by a narrow, grade-level plank walkway laid directly on top of the marsh, Wing Island was Brewster's first open space acquisition in 1961. It has since become the beloved haunt of bird watchers, naturalists, educators, and nature walkers. The adjacent Cape Cod Museum of Natural History sponsors a bird banding station and other programs on the island. Access to Wing Island has stirred controversy since the proposed boardwalk was mentioned in discussions about plans for Drummer Boy Park. Supporters argued that a boardwalk would improve access for those with mobility issues. Critics worried that a raised boardwalk would bring too much activity to the delicate marsh and island, home to bird species that are of special concern or endangered. Part of the new directive calls for a reconstituted Drummer Boy Park panel to focus on parking and other improvements and leave out any further discussion of Wing Island in their plans. Transferring control of the island to the Conservation Commission will require approval of a special act by voters, as well as the state legislature. Voters at the Maytown meeting will consider an item on the warrant to that effect. A lawyer who routinely appears before Outer Cape regulatory boards is the owner of the building where a six-year-old boy died in a fire last month inside an illegally constructed apartment. Orleans resident Ben Zender, one of the best-known zoning law attorneys in the area, confirmed this week that he's the person behind the limited liability company that owns 177 Route 6A. He said he has owned the building since 2005. Zender said he moved his office out of the building in 2017 
and entered a lease-to-own agreement with Peter Eli, who Zender said lives in Florida. According to Zender, it was Eli who converted the two commercial spaces into residential apartments without obtaining building permits. Reached by phone, Eli refused to comment. Orleans Building Inspector Martin Furtado said the work done in the illegal apartments was never inspected. In a letter sent to both Eli and Zender after the fire, Furtado said there were several smoke detectors missing and other extensive violations. Zender said Eli rented out those new units to tenants, including the family of the boy who died in the fire. Landlords can face criminal prosecution for neglecting their properties and causing the death or injury of tenants. For that to happen, police would need to find hard evidence of the landlord's neglect, and the district attorney would have to decide to prosecute. In this case, the state fire marshal, state police, and local fire and police investigated the fire and determined that the evidence did not reveal any criminal conduct. After the fire, Zender said, he terminated his agreement with Eli and intends to fully follow the directions of the building inspector. The Orleans Select Board is drafting a bylaw requiring that long-term apartments be subject to basic inspections. Orleans Fire Chief Jeff Deering said the fire safety inspection should be part of that bylaw, but the town has only one fire inspector, who currently handles 900 inspections a year. There is no staff to take on further inspections, Deering said. Furtado said the building department also lacks staff to check on code violations. He speculated that there are many more illegal apartments in town, but without more staff, says it's impossible to do more. When the State Department of Revenue presented its unfavorable financial management review to the Wellfleet Select Board and Finance Committee at the end of last month, there was hope that the list of 20 recommendations for the town would help provide a clear path out of the woods. But local officials were left wondering how to take the first steps on that path. Wellfleet needs to dig itself out of a three-year-long financial fiasco that has left it without a state-certified free cash account since 2019. The state recommended that the town reduce its reliance on tax overrides and debt exclusions to fund the budget. But select board members didn't see how to address that without access to the free cash. Town Administrator Rich Waldo told the boards that the fiscal 2022 cash books have been reconciled and the collector's receivables should be finalized within a week. Once all the documents are submitted, the certification process by the state will likely take three to four weeks. Waldo said that he anticipates more than $1 million will become available through the process, and the money will go to restoring the depleted stabilization fund before it will go to capital projects. One member of the state delegation said that the recommendation to hire a full-time finance director was the most important recommendation in the whole report. Currently, the department includes an interim accountant, treasurer, collector, and assessor. While many communities have a combined accountant and finance director role, the Department of Revenue recommends that Wellfleet establish the finance director as its own job so that everybody can focus on specific tasks.
But while the select board voted to establish a finance director position at its meeting on February 23rd, the proposal set forth by Waldo was for a combined accountant and finance director. Waldo hoped that the dual role would help the town recruit for the position, but the town has not yet received any applications for the job. The position has a salary range of between $120,000 and $130,000. In other news from Wellfleet Town Government, the select board unanimously voted to insert a warrant article for this year's annual town meeting that would increase the stipend to $5,000 for select board members and $7,000 for the chair. The current stipend is $2,500 across the board. Member Kathleen Bacon said the stipend has not been increased since 2017, and the last increase before that was in 1989. Bacon said that she hoped a stipend increase would send a message that the select board is a serious endeavor and would encourage more people to run for the office. Vice Chair Michael DeVasto agreed that the board needs to find ways to make the position more desirable and that there are too many unopposed races. Voters will get the final say on the matter at town meeting, which is provisionally scheduled for April 28th at 10 a.m. at Wellfleet Elementary School. Capabilities Farm is set to expand its Community Supported Agriculture, or CSA, program starting at the end of March. The farm is launching its spring and summer SNAP CSA programs, in which participants can get fresh vegetables and fruit from the farm every week or every other week for a fixed price. The spring program runs through April and May. The summer program runs June, July, and August. There are five-week and nine-week options in the spring. The summer season offers seven- and 13-week shares. Members pick up their shares at Capabilities Farm on Route 6A in Dennis. Payments will be processed through a SNAP monthly allocation. SNAP is a U.S. Department of Agriculture program that provides nutrition benefits to supplement the food budget of families with low incomes. Getting healthy, fresh produce into kitchens and educating people about the ways that they can enjoy different foods is part of what the CSA program is about. Capabilities Farm includes easy, creative recipes with every box of produce. Anyone interested in participating can complete a CSA form and return it to Capabilities Farm. This form is available at the farm or online at capabilitiesfarm.org. The deadline to apply for the spring CSA is March 23rd. The deadline to apply for the summer CSA is May 25th. For more information, you can call 508-385-2538. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. Windsor Skilled Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in South Yarmouth has had a COVID-19 outbreak over the last few weeks, with a total of five resident deaths reported as of Monday. 
Since February 21st, when the outbreak began, the nursing home has had a total of 75 residents and 20 staff test positive for COVID-19. There are 86 residents in the facility. The facility is conducting daily tests for residents and staff who have tested negative, according to Lisa Gaudet, Vice President of Business Development and Marketing at Integritus Healthcare, which operates the nursing home. Integritus Healthcare is a nonprofit Massachusetts based company offering senior housing and health care, memory care, hospice, and palliative care. As of Monday, there were 21 residents still testing positive in the facility and 47 residents who had recovered. Five members of the staff had recovered, while 15 staff members were still testing positive. There have not been any new resident cases since Saturday, March 4th. 90% of residents at Windsor have had the primary series vaccine, and 87% are up to date with their booster shot. Integritus Healthcare has their own infection control team on the grounds at Windsor. According to Gaudet, the team is in daily communication with the epidemiology team at the Department of Public Health, to assure that all practices and protocols are in adherence with their requirements. State public health officials issued an admissions freeze notice to the facility on February 28th in response to the outbreak. In addition, a state-supported rapid response team has been providing clinical support at the facility since February 28th. The 10- to 12-member rapid response team consists of licensed nurses and certified nursing assistants. At Windsor, they would be providing clinical care to residents, such as medication administration, support with eating, toileting, and bathing, and performing hand hygiene and personal protective equipment audits. The facility had five total resident deaths reported from March 2020, to February of this year. Every year since 2006, Provincetown town meeting voters have considered special funding measures called community preservation grants. The money comes from a 3% surcharge on property taxes and can be used for historic preservation, affordable housing, outdoor recreation, and open space. This year, the Community Preservation Committee has recommended just over $1 million in grant requests to town meeting voters. They appear on the warrant as Article 8 and include funding for two affordable housing projects, the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, the Chelsea Ernest Memorial Playground on Nickerson Street, the Provincetown Art Association and Museum, and the Schooner Hindu. The largest recommended grants this year are, as they have been almost every year, for affordable housing. The warrant contains a $500,000 grant request to the Community Builders, Inc., the nonprofit that's building 65 units of affordable housing at the former VFW site on Jerome Smith Road. In past years, Provincetown approved grants to support affordable units in projects at Seashore Point, Province Landing, and Stable Path. What's unusual this year is that Warrant Article 11 asks to transfer $2.25 million to the community builders for the same project. That money comes from free cash and from the town's tourism fund, 
which is funded by the rooms tax on stays in hotels and short-term rentals. The community builders bought a parcel of land on Captain Birdie's Way last year to add to the Jerome Smith project. Town manager Alex Morse told the select board at this year's budget meetings that the town would otherwise have bought the land itself, but the developer was able to purchase it faster and for the same price. The town's contribution to the project on Jerome Smith Road should be seen, at least in part, as financing the purchase of that land, according to Morse. Article 8 also asks to transfer $225,000 to the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. The third housing grant in the article is $75,000 for the 46 affordable apartments at Juniper Hill, which is the new name for the 95 Lawrence Road project in Wellfleet. The two historic preservation grants on the warrant sparked more discussion. The committee ultimately decided to divide its available money for historic preservation projects equally between two applicants. The Provincetown Art Association and Museum had requested $100,000 to help replace a roof at the museum, and the schooner Hindu was seeking $144,000 to pay for the replanking of the deck of the historic vessel, part of a half-million-dollar rebuild of the boat that's currently taking place in Maine. The committee forwarded each project to town meeting voters with a recommended grant of $73,500. All six grants will now come to a vote at town meeting. They're currently set to be voted on as a group, but should a voter request it, they could be considered and voted on separately. The select board met on Friday, March 3rd to formalize the warrant for the upcoming town meeting on April 3rd. There are 29 articles, not including the consent agenda. The Capital Improvement Plan, listed in Article 9, includes 30 different investments in town facilities and infrastructure, including new roofs at Harbor Hill and a study on creating a 40-foot opening with a bridge in the Long Point Dyke. Those 30 items add up to $5.8 million in spending, although nearly a third of that is for just one item, a waterline replacement project on McMillan Pier. Article 14 would allocate $100,000 to a pilot project to provide early morning and late-night bus or van transportation for people who work in Provincetown but live in other Outer Cape towns. Article 15 would ask the legislature to authorize a deed restriction program that would limit properties to year-round occupancy rather than by income. There are seven petitioned articles, including one on plastic waste, three on short-term rentals, two limiting fireworks displays, and one changing the boundaries of the town's historic district. The Cape Cod Natural History Conference, sponsored by Mass Audubon Cape Cod, takes place this Saturday, March 11th, from 8.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. at Cape Cod Community College's Tilden Arts Center in West Barnstable. Shorebirds, spadefoot toads, ticks, gray seals, cyanobacteria, whales, and wastewater are all on the agenda. Mass Audubon Cape Cod Regional Director Melissa Lowe said, 
It's exciting to have the conference back in full swing for the first time since 2019. The conference highlights the latest scientific research on Cape and Islands ecology, wildlife, waterways, and other natural resources. Among the topics on the schedule, the role Cape Cod plays in efforts to protect a declining shorebird, the wimbrel, and how cyanobacteria blooms affect food webs. One presentation sure to attract attention will address the relationship between gray seals and great white sharks on Cape Cod. Conference organizers expect as many as 250 attendees at the conference. Anyone who wants to go needs to register by going to massaudubon.org or call 508-349-2615. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. Most people spend a lot of time worrying, well over an hour and a half every day, according to studies, and I get this. But psychologists tell us it's all a terrible waste of time and psychic energy because 90% of what we worry about will never happen. Personally, I don't worry about the big issues, money, health, family, work, because it's those small, trivial things that can really be dangerous. I'm sure there's nobody listening who hasn't caused themselves a great deal of pain by trying to get rid of pain. That is, trying to open a tamper-resistant package of pain pills. It all began back in 1982 when some psychopath in the Chicago suburbs killed seven innocent people by spiking Tylenol capsules with cyanide. Companies have been trying to save our lives and making them even more dangerous ever since. Safety sealing Everything from ice cream containers, after teenagers started licking ice cream in a social media video challenge, to cannabis edibles, which are as irresistible as they are dangerous to children. Nevertheless, simply trying to open a package is one of those very simple things that shouldn't be hard, but has the potential to send every single one of us to the hospital. Another overlooked hazard is asking guys who are working on your neighbor's house to lower the volume on their boombox. In my experience, it doesn't matter if they're landscapers, framers, general contractors, or roofers. You're in your own house, peacefully minding your own business, when suddenly your walls start to shake, your cats scatter in opposite directions, and your partner is moving their lips with no sound coming out, because the only thing either of you can hear is the shrieking vocals, blast beat drumming, and chunka chunka guitar of the boombox next door playing the death metal band Cannibal Corpse at full volume. You can't just call your neighbor because, of course, he's home in West Hartford and won't be back to his summer house until June. So it's up to you 
to walk calmly next door and ask a truckload of guys wearing skullcap bandanas to please lower their music. A situation that never fails to elicit a spate of existential questions that seldom end with a peaceful resolution. Who the hell do I think I am anyway? Don't I know it's a free country? And why don't I mind my own business? Whenever anyone asks me how I'm doing, I always remember an old Henny Youngman joke. How's your wife, someone asks him, and he says, compared to what? That's actually how I measure how I'm doing, and the answer is pretty good compared to the citizens of Ukraine or people who've been evicted from their homes or all those poor souls diagnosed with incurable cancer. I lead a pretty easy life, full of things I shouldn't have to worry about at all. Except, have you ever tried to cut your cat's nails? That shouldn't be hard, right? Until the very sight of a pair of nail clippers turns a cuddly, loving ball of fur into a velociraptor fiercely bent on dismembering you for attacking it. Have you ever tried to make a left turn on Route 6? I'm not talking about summer traffic here when the volume of cars actually slows the traffic. I'm talking about the off-season when the road is relatively clear and an approaching truck from a mile away is so indignant that you would dare pull in front of him that he speeds up and tailgates your bumper for having the audacity to force him to tap his brake pedal. How about microwaving a cup of of instant ramen. Did you know that the starchy liquid in the container can cause burns that not only scald your mouth but can send you to the operating room for skin grafts? The list goes on, but you get the point. It's a dangerous world out there, people, and there is a lot to worry about. But we're all worried about the wrong things. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. This is meteorologist Will David with your weekly weather watch and temperature trend for the Outer Cape. The atmospheric traffic jam that brought us the blustery and chilly weather much of this week is finally weakening. This is allowing a huge North Atlantic storm to finally move away as high pressure brings us lots of sunshine this afternoon. However, that sunshine will be short-lived, as a disturbance now over the Midwest and Great Lakes races eastward tonight and tomorrow. The high to our north should be strong enough to keep the storm's main impact south and east, but close enough to bring us a good chance of rain, along with gusty breezes late tonight and Saturday. Right now, Sunday is looking like the better of the two weekend days as that low moves away. Another more significant storm now on the West Coast will bring high impact weather to the Outer Cape in the form of a strong coastal storm late Monday through early Wednesday. Of course, the storm is still a few days out and the devil is in the details. The exact track, speed and strength of the storm will determine the amount of impact on the Outer Cape regarding rain and snow, strong to damaging winds, coastal flooding, and possible power outages, so stay tuned. After that storm passes, a chilly northwest blow will once again set up for the rest of the week and into next weekend with below average temperatures. 
Elsewhere across the nation, the big story is the atmospheric river once again aiming directly at the west coast of California with excessive rain, snow, and high winds. Five to 10 inches of rain with locally higher amounts are likely along the California coast, with up to eight additional feet of snow across the Sierras and other mountainous regions of California, where biblical amounts of snow have already fallen since December. This season now rivals the all-time snowiest and wettest season on record for California, and that was the winter of 83-84, and will likely surpass it before the end of the month. It's this storm that will move eastward and bring more snow to the upper Midwest, strong storms, flooding, and possible tornadoes to the plains and Mid-South, and strong winds, heavy rain, and heavy snow to portions of the Mid-Atlantic and New England for the early to middle part of next week. And finally, the cloudy and blustery weather much of this week has been caused by that atmospheric traffic jam I just mentioned a couple minutes ago. As last weekend's storm moved away, it stalled over the North Atlantic near the Canadian Maritimes. This phenomenon is also referred to as the Greenland block and occurs when both upper level and surface high pressure sets up over Greenland blocking any and every other weather system from moving in. But this week's Greenland block was extraordinary. It led to record smashing high temperatures that were 50 degrees above average. This remarkable warmth sent the temperature in Greenland's capital to just shy of 60 degrees last Sunday, making it the highest temperature ever recorded for both the months of March and April. Again, another example of climate change where extreme or extraordinary weather events become more and more commonplace. Now my exclusive WOMR weekend weather forecast for the Outer Cape. This afternoon, mostly sunny, highs around 43. Tonight, becoming mostly cloudy with a slight chance of rain overnight, lows around 38. Saturday, breezy and chilly with a good chance of rain, near steady temperatures in the upper 30s. Sunday, partly sunny and continued breezy, highs around 42. As always, stay safe and informed by keeping an eye to the sky and an ear to the radio. Have a wonderful weekend, everybody. I'm Weather Will. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Provincetown Banner, the Cape Codder, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks to Beth Dunn, Will David, and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported Community Radio. WOMR.